uh, continue in our series in the book of Acts. Um, we will read this morning verses 16 through 34. Uh, it is um, our normal practice to stand when we read God's Word, and from time to time we um, stray from that practice depending on the length of the, the passage we're reading. Uh, this one's right on the border. So, if you are able, let's stand as we read God's Word together. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, and that's Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would now be at work in this, your word. Teach us, instruct us, grow us, conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name and for his sake that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated.
So I have um, two um, favorite quotes, I guess, from Winnie the Pooh. Uh, the first one has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Um, uh, my f first favorite quote from Winnie the Pooh is when um, he says something like, uh, I, I like short sentences like, what about lunch? So I can, I can relate to that. Um, my second is when he describes himself as a bear of very little brain. Uh, and in many ways, uh, there are those people out there who contend that Christianity is for people of very little brain. They argue, they contend that in this world of science and, and you know, that, that Christianity is for people who either don't understand or don't like science. And if you, if you really were a scientist, if you really read and understood science, then you wouldn't need religion and you certainly wouldn't need Christianity. Some of us respond with disdain. Some of us perhaps respond with despair. But I want you to see Paul's reaction to a world that's actually very similar. A world for the intellectual elite. A world for the leaders of thought in the first century. And yet, one into which Paul brings the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know Paul's pattern. We've seen this over and over again through uh, the book of Acts. His pattern is whenever he enters a new city to start in the synagogue, to start where the Jews are. And so he gathers on the Sabbath day in the local synagogue and proclaims Christ from the Old Testament. He reasons there with the Jews, with the Gentiles that are converted. And he does the same thing here in verse 17 in, in Athens. So in, in a new city, he's there. He's alone now. He's without uh, Silas and Timothy and without Luke. Uh, Luke, it seems, is still in Philippi. Silas and Timothy are back in Berea. And Paul is now alone in Athens. But something changes in Athens from especially Thessalonica and Berea, which is the first half of chapter 17. The Jews seem in Athens to sort of fade into the background. It, we're told that he reasoned in the synagogues, and yet after that in Athens, they, they really seem to disappear. They have no real part to play in Paul's interaction with the people of Athens. So he, he reasoned with the Jews just as he always does, and then they're gone. Then they, they disappear. And after that, everything moves to the marketplace, to the Areopagus, to the places where the Athenians exchange ideas and worldviews and philosophies. I think that raises a question for us. How do we reach the intellectual types in the world around us, but the intellectual types who have zero knowledge of the Bible. See, these are, these are people that didn't have the Old Testament. I mean, Paul typically started in the synagogues because he could open the Old Testament and go, let me show you Jesus from here. 
with the Athenians, with these Greeks in Athens, he's left to look elsewhere. They don't, they're not using the Old Testament. That's not their background. That's not their history. And so how do you reach intellectual types who have zero knowledge of the Bible? There are plenty of people in our world today, a growing number it seems, who fit that category. And so the question is, how do we reach them? How do we interact with that group? You do realize Paul's in Athens. Not Athens, Alabama. Not even Athens, Georgia, for that matter. He's in the leading philosophical, educational center of the Western world. They're known for politics and and they give us things like democracy. They're known for philosophy. They're known for architecture. And you can still visit the very buildings that Paul is in in this passage 2,000 years later. He's in a place known for intellectuals. There are these two groups of philosophers mentioned in the passage in verse 18. There are Stoics and there are Epicureans. And, and for the life of me, I, I, I have not studied much philosophy, but even we use the word Stoic to mean, you know, you have to say this in sort of a British accent, put on a brave face, stiff upper, stiff upper lip and all that. It means that we endure the whatever the trials of life bring us. Uh, they believed in a, a fatalism and submission and a, a recognition that we just endure pain. We just endure struggle. The Epicureans were a little different. They pursued pleasure. But they believed in a a randomness, a chance to life. Not fatalism, not whatever will be, will be, but it's it's all random and none of it makes sense. You you just pursue pleasure. In fact, growing up in Columbia, there was a, South Carolina, um, there was a restaurant called the Elite Epicurean. Uh, They they were all about uh, the customer's enjoyment, pleasure in a good meal. It wasn't that long ago that, you ever heard of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle? Okay, so the, the prince's bride line there is morons, but that's not, they're just, they're just a couple of hundred years before Paul. Socrates, in fact, was, was put to death right here. He was tried, examined right where Paul is tried and examined in this passage. In other words, this is a place where the leading intellectuals gathered. And so how do they respond to Paul's preaching? Notice verse 18. Some of them call him a babbler. Um, it's a word that means um, trivial or worthless. He's, he's really not saying much. What he's saying is trivial, it's worthless, he's just... Picking at pieces here and there. He's not putting together a a coherent worldview or philosophy or thought or idea. 
Some of them accuse him of, of talking about foreign divinities. You remember the Greeks had a, an array of gods and goddesses. Um, and Paul's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It just so happens that the word he's using for resurrection was also a girl's name. So they hear, hey, Jesus and Anastasis. Let's just add them to Zeus, Hera, Hermes, and the rest. There are a couple of applications I want to make right here. First, Paul's preaching Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead to people who had zero Bible knowledge. There's no like groundwork being laid. There's no pre-evangelism. There's, he jumped straight into, let me tell you about Jesus. Christ lived, died, was buried, and raised on the third day for you. And He jumps in right there with people who have zero working knowledge of the Bible. He can't appeal to Moses, to the law or the prophets. He's got to jump straight into, and, and yet He does jump straight into the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That's the Gospel. See, we do things like, we call it evangelism, and what we really mean is, I'm making friends with somebody. We've been friends for years. How many times have you told him about Jesus? Well, I mean, never, but just... Paul's doing kind of the opposite here. He jumps straight into Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead without... First, building friendships and, and developing relationships with people. The reality is, if we aren't talking about Jesus as the only way of salvation, then we aren't evangelizing. But there's another application I want to make here too. And look back at verse um, 16. Notice verse 16. There's a word there. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. That word you've heard before. Luke uses the same word back in chapter 15 to describe the argument between Paul and Barnabas. So when Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement, a sharp disagreement, and they couldn't reach a, a, a conclusion together and they split and parted ways forever, it seems, or at least in terms of missionary journeys. That's the same word used here. So that sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, that provoking in Paul as he looked around Athens. He's agitated. He's worked up over. But what is it? What's gotten him worked up? Well, we're told right there in verse 16. He saw that the city was full of... Of idols. Yes, there are statues to Zeus, Hera, Hermes, and the rest. In fact, there's an, another one with an inscription that says, just in case we missed one. Just in case there's another one out there that we somehow don't know or haven't found yet. You know, not all idols are statues. Not all idols are made of marble. 
for many in our world, their God is pleasure. Whether food or drink or sex or laziness or anything else. How do we react to the sight of the gods of the people around us? Do we look down on them? Do we find ourselves arrogant because we have the right answers and they don't? Do we find ourselves thinking, well, I sure am glad I'm not like those people. I sure am glad I know the truth and they, even if they don't. Or is your spirit provoked within you? Pray that God would provoke your spirit at the sight of the idols in the world around us. We need more internal agitation over the faults, the wrong beliefs of the world around us. Evangelism begins not with right knowledge, not with I know the right stuff and you don't, so just come sit here and let me tell you. It doesn't begin with disdain. It begins with love. Love for the lost who don't know Christ, who are on a path to destruction and need the Gospel more than anything. But look at how Paul engages in evangelism with these thought leaders in uh, Athens. He's, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about the Gospel. He's talking about the resurrection. And so they said, look, here's the deal. You've got to come with us to the Areopagus. You've got to come to the Athenian council that adjudicated religious discussions. They decided, is this an acceptable religion, religious belief or not? In Socrates' case, they decided against him and gave him that hemlock drink to, to die. And so Paul is dragged to the same council, the same place, right there to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And for this, this group, this Areopagus, to decide, is this an acceptable philosophy or not? So how do you, where do you start? How do you start with people who have no Bible knowledge? Well, Paul begins with creation. He looks around and says, look, everything that exists, exists because God has put it there. In fact, you even have a statue to an unknown God and what you think is unknown, what you don't yet know, I do, let me introduce you to Him. In other words, Paul looks around and says, creation is the theater of God's glory. You were in a cabin in Montana and sit out on the back porch at midnight when there are no clouds in the sky. Everybody says, wow. And Paul says, the reason you say, wow, is because there's a God who put those stars there. 
He's, it shows His power. It shows His authority. It shows His creativity. It reveals God as both scientist and artist. That He would knit living systems together to work the way they do and the way we can evaluate them scientifically, but with color and shape and form of an artist. And Paul says, look, just the way an artist signs his name in the bottom corner of his painting. That's what, that's what creation is. It's God's signature. He's signed his name. He's given his imprint to his creation. He says, I've made this and I've made this for you. And nowhere is that clearer than in you and me. As God's image bearers here on earth. If Paul had been speaking to the synagogue, he would have just started in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. He can't do that with them, but yet he still is in the same truth. He's still right there telling them the heavens declare the glory of God without quoting Psalm 19.1 to do it. I don't know how many of you are um, social media people. I, I go through phases and every now and then I actually delete Twitter from my phone and, and I get things done. Um, in the past week or so, there was some atheist, and I, I didn't save it, I can't quote it, I can't get it exactly right, and the only reason it showed up in my timeline, it must have been because somebody I know responded to it, and if I could have figured that out, I would have figured out this quote, because I searched for it, and I couldn't figure, but something to the effect, an atheist tweeted something to the effect, making a mockery, Christianity, colon, Something to the effect of the belief that an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise being spoke into existence everything that exists and wants to know you is something to that effect. And and you know the Christian responses. I know, isn't it amazing? Isn't it absolutely incredible? Thank you for proclaiming Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 19 for us. That's, that's Paul's point. All of creation exists as the theater of God's glory. It displays His glory. And so what that means, verse 24, is... You can't take the creator of heaven and earth and limit him to a building. You can't take the creator of heaven and earth and limit him to a statue of marble or gold or silver, as he says later in the passage. The truth is, everyone, everywhere, forever, sees the revelation of God because we stand in it and amazed at it. In fact, the Athenians knew this. Look at verse 28. They recognized their own poet said, in him we live and move our, and have our being. Their own poet said, for we are indeed his offspring. And in fact, they give away the fact that they actually don't believe their religion when they build a, a statue to an unknown God. What they did in that moment, they admitted 
we're not really sure about these others. Like we believe this other stuff, but maybe not so convinced that we won't just cover our bases just in case. The reality is, as Blaise Pascal said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. And so Paul looks at the people around him and he sees that vacuum. And he says, let me tell you about the God that fills that hole. Let me tell you about the God who is what you've been looking for. And so Paul says there's, there's evidence that you understand this. Even that you would, would make an idol to an unknown God. You don't believe what you say you believe. You recognize that you just might be wrong. You see, the problem isn't... The problem for these Athenians, the problem in the world around us today, it's not that people don't see God's glory. It's that they reject the message they're getting. That's what Paul writes in Romans 1. Yes, you see the truth, you just suppress it in your unrighteousness. And so all their efforts, all their religiosity, all their idols, all their statues, it actually condemns the Athenians. The same is true in the world today. All the gods of the people around us, whatever that god may be, it doesn't show that they're religious. It simply shows that they stand condemned. That they are idolaters. And so the question is, what hope is there for people like that? Well, the beauty is, Paul tells us. Because not only is this Creator, not only is this God the Creator, but He's also the Judge. Verse 31, He's coming, He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. You know, I wonder how many of us pass final judgment before God does. You see, part of Paul's point is, yes, He's Creator. Yes, you've rejected Him. Yes, you see His glory. You see evidence for Him all around you and you've suppressed that truth. And yes, He's coming to judge you. But this judge is a patient judge. That appointed day is still in the future. How do I know? Because He hadn't done it yet. He hadn't come back and judged the living and the dead as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And so until that day comes, you and I get to enjoy and, and appreciate and celebrate a patient judge. And Paul says to these Athenians, repent because there is forgiveness. You and I, I'm afraid, far too often write people off while there's still time. 
We pass that final judgment. We play the role of Christ as returning judge before He gets a chance to. And we determine, well, they're out. They're done. It's too late. It's too far gone. You believe all the wrong stuff. I'm done with you. We wash our hands of the situation and turn and leave and go somewhere else. We pass final judgment before God does. Paul looks at these idolaters and says... Repent. Which means they have hope of being forgiven. Why do they have that hope? Because God is a forgiving God and He has not yet come in judgment. Paul urges his hearers to repent. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because there is a coming judgment, but that judgment isn't here yet. Are you familiar with um, Evangelism Explosion? It was the uh, evangelism uh, method uh, created by uh, D. James Kennedy and uh, it basically is centered on two questions. The first question is, uh, if you died tonight, do you know for certain you would go to heaven? The second question is, if you died tonight and, and ended up in heaven and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What answer would you give? I think in today's world, we need more questions. The first question assumes afterlife. It assumes heaven. It assumes things we can't assume in our world today. It assumes things Paul could not assume in his. The Athenians would have said, well, what is that? What do you mean heaven? After death, there's nothing. That's it. So there's, why are we even having that conversation? Paul confronts the Athenians with their need for Christ. And he jumps straight into proclaiming Christ and Him crucified and offers them repentance, urges them to repent because repentance is necessary for salvation. He doesn't tell them to do better. He doesn't tell them to try harder. He says you need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and Him alone. You and I would do well to learn evangelism from Paul in Acts 17. Our job isn't mere persuasion. It's not mere giving out information or facts about Jesus. Our job is to call people to repent. What kind of response should you expect to that call? You'll get the same response as Paul got. In Acts 17. Notice at the end of the chapter, some of them mocked Him. There will be people who laugh at the idea of repentance, of Christ, of of God becoming man and living a, a holy and righteous life that you and I could not. And suffering and bleeding and dying on a cross for 
death that we deserve, for punishment that we deserved, and, and being raised, they'll mock. They, they'll think that's silly and, and ludicrous and science doesn't allow for the resurrection. You, you don't know anything. There are people that will likely mock us. There are some who, there's a, a second group in this passage. You know what, Paul? We want to hear some more about this. Their, their interest might be merely academic. It might be spiritual. It could be, well, this is curious. I'd like to hear more about this. It could be God working in their hearts. But there will also be people like Dionysius, like Damaris, and others who repent, who respond in faith and trust in Christ and Him alone for their salvation. Let me make two applications from this passage. The first is this. Notice, Paul doesn't control who responds in faith. That's out of his hands. He proclaims Christ and trusts that God will move hearts as He sees fit. You and I can't change people. You and I can't convince unbelievers to come to saving faith in Christ. That's God's work. But let me make the second application. The gospel is absolutely for everybody. For the academically elite who think they're too high and lofty and too thoughtful and smart for something as outdated and simple as religion, especially Christianity. For men, for women, for members of the, the, the inner court, the Areopagus like Dionysius, for a woman who, a name we're given, but we don't know why. And then others who have no name, others with them. Men, women, boys, girls, old, young, influential, not so much. The gospel's for everybody. You and I are called to proclaim Christ to anyone and everyone who will listen. May God grant us provoked spirits and love for the lost enough that we will proclaim Christ as we go about our day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for forgiveness found in Christ and Him alone. For the promise and hope of the gospel. For confidence in your power and your wisdom to do as you see fit in your creation. Father, would you provoke our spirits that we would hurt for the lost? Uh, that we would weep at the thought of people around us worshiping false gods, not knowing Christ. That we would love them and love Jesus enough to introduce them to Christ as their only hope of salvation. And Father, we pray that You will do what You will with that Gospel message. 
Grow Your kingdom through us and in us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.